Well, hello and welcome. Uh, please have your Bibles open to those verses that we just read from Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at those together this morning. Uh, before we do so, we're going to ask the Lord for help. Father, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning so that we might hear what your spirit is saying to each one of us. And as the motives and the workings of our hearts are laid bare, we pray that you would grant that we should repent and turn to you the source of grace and truth. If we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, perhaps you know the story of the anointing of King David. Saul, the first king of Israel, was an impressive man. That's actually how he's described when we first meet him in the book of 1 Samuel. We were told that he is head and shoulders above his fellow Israelites. And yet it turned out after only a short time on the throne that he did not love the Lord with an obedient heart. He was prone to bend the rules and to take matters into his own hands rather than doing what God said. And because of this, the Lord rejected him as king and the prophet, judge, Samuel, was sent to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint Saul's replacement. The Lord told Samuel that he would indicate to him which of Jesse's sons he had chosen. What transpired when, Jesse, uh, when, uh, when uh, Samuel arrived at Jesse's house was something like a Miss America pageant. Jesse had lots of sons and each one of them was paraded in front of the prophet. Seven sons in total were presented to Samuel and each looked like a really good candidate for kingship. When Samuel saw the first son, Eliab, he said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He was so convinced this must be the right man. But God said to Samuel, and this is the important point this morning. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Each one of Jesse's seven finest strapping sons was rejected. And it turned out that it was the youngest, David, number eight, just like me, who had to be called in from looking after the sheep. And he was the one that God had chosen. Humble shepherd boy. God's choice, God's approval was on the one that everybody else overlooked. The one whose, whose dad didn't even consider worth presenting to Samuel. And something very similar is going on in our text from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12 here. First of all, we see uh, an exposure of the inner workings of the leaders of Israel, this Sanhedrin group. We're focusing now really on those called the scribes or the teachers of the law. And they are held in this passage in acid contrast with a lowly widow overlooked by all who catches the eye of the son of God 
and is held up as an example for his disciples to follow. So we have here two things, really, two points that we're looking at this morning. The superficial scribes and the worshipping widow. Let's read from verse 38 together. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So the scribes or the teachers of the law, as the NIV puts it, they were a group who came largely from the school of the Pharisees with their picky and legalistic mindset. They specialised, as their name suggests, in the study of the law of Moses. Apparently, there was a saying amongst the Jews that Moses received the law and gave it to Joshua. Joshua received the law and gave it to the elders. The elders received the law and gave it to the prophets. The prophets received the law and gave it to the scribes. So they were looked on as the experts at the end of an unbroken line of transmission from God through his servant Moses. Whether it was a religious issue or a civil matter, they were the ones who answered and handled all the legal matters for the people, applying God's word, apparently, to each and every situation as it was brought before them. Unlike the Sadducees, these men did not come from wealthy or influential families or backgrounds, but they were greatly respected by everyone in the nation. And Jesus here issues a strong word of caution as he paints a portrait of these men for us. First, you could see them coming a mile off and you knew who they were because of their flowing robes, says Jesus. Did you know that the original reason that ministers in the state church, actually all over Europe, started to wear a surplus, you know, those coats that are put over their clothing. Well, according to German scholar Max Müller, clothing like this was originally what the peasants wore at the time they adopted them. A surplus was like an apron that you put over your good clothes when you went to work in the fields or do dirty work. And the churchmen of the day adopted this kind of dress so that they could be like the people that they were ministering to. Now, of course, to wear any kind of clerical garb, like a surplus or a dog collar or a tall pointy hat, is to make a point today, isn't it? That you are different, that you are a minister. And likewise, before going out in public, these scribes donned their talits. These were full-length prayer shawls with tassels because tassels makes everything a lot more fancy. According to uh, Numbers chapter 15, all Jews were actually supposed to have tassels on the corners of their garments and they were supposed to have uh, blue thread woven into them and it was to remind them as they looked at these tassels that they were to be obedient to God's law. But as you can imagine, 
the longer the robe and the bigger the tassels, the more pious, surely, the more religious, the more respectable the individual. This was not a robe for complying with God's instructions. It was a robe for ostentatiously standing out. So much so, it seems, as you read on, that as soon as they entered the marketplace in any town, all present would notice and they would respectfully stand up and greet them. This was what they were after, of course. They wanted to be seen and to be respected and to, they wanted the praise of all the people. In fact, in Luke's account, Jesus says they loved this. They wanted to be called teacher or master or rabbi, to have an esteemed title. Honoured one, exalted teacher, revered one. You do know that that's the root of the word reverend, don't you? See, this culture always surrounds showy religion. And we're to be on our guard when teachers come with fancy clothes and requiring exalted titles. Interesting, isn't it? Of course, it's not the outward packaging that actually really matters. It's why they're doing it. What's the source of this behaviour? In his inimitable way, Bible teacher John MacArthur observes this. He says, Lack of spirituality results in the expansion of symbolism. The less reality, the more symbol. The more reality, the less symbol. They're in verse. But when you have nothing on the inside and only what is on the outside, then symbols will expand and explode. It's a great quote, isn't it? See, that's why churches, you visit churches perhaps, that have lost the gospel and they have forsaken teaching of the word of God. They're all about other things. Well, when you go into these churches, have you noticed how they are so often jam-packed full of religious ornaments and furniture and icons and symbols? It's because the one replaces the other. And then back to these scribes, you see, then they would enter the synagogue, says Jesus. And of course, they would be ushered to the most important seats in the building. Most people just sat on the floor in the middle of the synagogue. But along the walls of the synagogue were benches. They were reserved for more important visitors. And then, of course, the most important seats of all were at the front. They were reserved for the teachers, for those assessing the teaching, perhaps, as well. They were the seats reserved for scribes and teachers of the law. And the same was true, actually, when they attended any social gathering. They enjoyed the best seats in the house wherever they went, distinguished, you see, from all of the common people around them. These men, says Jesus, devour widows' houses. Now, that's an interesting item to put on the list, isn't it? Obviously, common to everything else here, whatever it means, it would not have been seen as any kind of wicked activity on the surface. It would have been taken as some kind of a form of piety. How's that so? Well, my hunch is that it refers to financially taking advantage of the vulnerable under the pretext 
of some kind of religiosity or spirituality. The historian Josephus tells a story of a, a Jewish charlatan who went to Rome, the big city, pretending to be one of these scribes. And this man managed to persuade a woman of high standing named Fulvia to make a sizable contribution to the temple in Jerusalem, which he then promptly embezzled, of course, causing a massive scandal and outreach that went all the way to the emperor. Sadly, preying on the vulnerable using religious means is still quite prevalent today. I wonder if you've seen it. The prosperity gospel perhaps being the most obvious and widespread of this kind of abuse. In fact, when addressing the issues of false teachers who've come into the church in Crete, the Apostle Paul instructs Titus saying, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. See, they're at the game as well. Or as the King James Version puts it, actually, I love this. Those who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And they're in it for prestige then, and they're in it for financial gain. And everything is dressed up, you see, isn't it? In ostentatious religious piety to try and persuade everybody that it's, uh, you know, it's above board. It's all religious. It's all good. Like the Pharisees in Jesus's parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they would enter the temple, Jesus finally tells us, to pray. And when they did, they would assume a prominent position. They would wait for all eyes to be on them and then they would utter their rehearsed, lengthy prayer in full, no doubt full of flowery religious language. And it's all a sham. It's empty hypocrisy. And it will end badly. For Jesus finishes this warning with those words at the end of verse 40. Take a look. He simply says, such men will be punished most severely. These men and all such men, all people like them, will come under the severe judgment of God. Beware then empty religion. Don't fall for it, but also don't let it become part of what you do. See, God is not fooled by people who try to make themselves look and sound like they're his disciples. God is not bound to accept you because you said a formula of words one time or recited a prayer or because you went through some kind of Christian ritual or rite of passage. Baptism won't save you and neither will communion. But those two things actually do point to what will save you. Those two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion, they preach of Christ's death in our place and his victory over death on our behalf, of the forgiveness of sins found through his blood that was shed and our wholehearted commitment to him. Within those symbols is the gospel. Don't be distracted by the symbols, go to what they point to. It is only those who truly love God, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, 
and who have fixed their hope on Jesus himself, who will be saved. You know, often at Christmas, our family is generously given a box of celebrations or miniature heroes or quality street. And my children uh, in years past used to delight in trying to take the wrappers of those sweets after they've eaten them and to reclose them again so as to look like the sweet is actually still inside. And then, you know, you come to the box thinking, oh, good, they've left one of those fudge ones for me. And you pick it up and then you suddenly realise, even from the weight of it, and as you unwrap it, it's just, it's just a wrapper. It's just hollow. There's nothing in there. Don't be fooled by any of the wrappings and trappings of religion. They are not the real thing. They have no substance. And God, who does not look on the outward appearance, but on the heart, knows exactly where you and where I am at. Can you look forwards to that final judgment day and truly say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Well, now Mark takes us on to see a sharp contrast. Take a look at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had to live, all that she had to live on. I mean, what a contrast with those teachers of the law that we've just been looking at. As you walk through the temple complex and entered into the court of the women, you would see the temple treasury. The temple treasurer himself was said to be second importance only to the chief priest himself. The temple was very big business. It handled a lot of money. And Jesus had already exposed some of the unscrupulous dealings of those who changed the money and sold livestock for sacrifices, the source of some of this, this filthy lucre. On top of this income, though, was the money freely given as gifts to God and as gifts to the priests. According to the Mishnah, there were 13 such collection chests in the temple each of them dedicated to a particular special offering that you could make. They were called shofar chests because they were shaped like a shofar, which was a ram's horn. And they had the tapered end pointing upwards in order to make theft difficult. You put your money into that narrow little end. And a priest would examine the currency being deposited <coughs> to check it for genuineness and then he would inquire which fund you wish to support, and then he would direct you to the appropriate receptacle. It would all have been very public and obvious. Hence Mark's comment about rich people coming forward in the crowd with large sums of money to be donated to various causes. 
and added to this, if you just picture it, you had the crashing of coins tumbling into the horn, as according to verse 41 there, they were, I like the way Mark puts this, they were thrown in by the rich. But amidst the crowd and amidst all of this clamour, Jesus's attention is drawn to a poor widow who makes her way to one of these chests and gently drops in her offering. You'd have to strain the ears to hear the faint clink clink sound of two tiny little coins falling into the box. There's no drama here. She quietly comes, she slips through the crowd and she goes. No one would have even noticed her, I guess. No one except Jesus. Jesus is not looking at outward appearances. He's looking at hearts as he surveys the temple courtyard. And hers stands out as so glorious and radiant that it makes Jesus quickly call his disciples over so he can point it out to them. From Jesus's point of view, this woman has just delivered more than any of the others, maybe even more than all of them combined. Why? Because everyone else, he says, has given out of their wealth. They could afford it. No doubt many of them did it with right and good motives. But it wasn't going to have any kind of an impact on their standard of living. They weren't going to go hungry that day. But this lady, says Jesus, has just given out of her poverty all that she had to live on. She was not going to let her lack get in the way of her love for God and her desire to give whatever it was that she could. In his commentary, James Edwards writes, in purely financial terms, the value of her offering was negligible and unworthy to compare with the sums of the wealthy donors. But in the divine exchange rate, things look differently. That which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalised in the book of life. For Jesus, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Here then is a true disciple. And Jesus wants his followers to get a really good look at her. Here's a woman of faith who has resolved to put God absolutely first and to give all that she had to him. Listen, this is not about money. And it's certainly not about giving to the church. By the way, I can think of dozens of ways that I could have preached this text this morning to make you all feel bad about how much you're giving to the church and to want to give more. But that would be to miss the important point. It would be completely wrong, actually. This whole episode here is about giving to God, not giving to the church. And God wants your all. She puts everything in. The religious leaders of Israel were all caught up with appearances. They viewed God like a celestial headmaster with a clipboard, checking they'd stuck to the rules and were keeping up appearances and were doing what they could. And they thought that the crashing of coins in the coffers would please God. But this woman understood that God looks at the heart. What and how much we have in this world doesn't really matter. 
ultimately. And neither does how we dress or where we go. What matters is having a heart and a life that totally belongs to God. And if that's the case, then, well, whatever gift we bring, no matter how insignificant we might think it is, will be noticed by our king and will have eternal significance. Will you give your all to him? Let's pray. Father, help us not to be deceived by external appearances. Help us to hold nothing back from you but to give you our all. Just as our Saviour gave up his throne for us and gave even his very life as a ransom to save sinners. Help us to follow him and help us to follow him with whole hearts in whose good name we pray. Amen.